Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. That's right. The North Carolina General Assembly has adopted its budget. It is now on the way over to the governor's uh, mansion, where he has said that he will not be signing it. He's not going to sign it. He's not going to veto. He's not going to veto his precious Medicaid expansion, but he's not going to sign it, which means it'll pass. It will become law. It was already passed, so uh, this is uh, in true Jim Black fashion, which is kind of funny to me watching Democrats today like uh, and last night, watching them you know, just cry and moan about the way the Republicans are doing it. It's like, all of your criticisms were what Republicans said when uh, they were in the minority. The Democrat majority used to run their budget process this exact way. They did. And it, it wasn't good government then. It's not good government now. Hasn't been in 20 years. So crocodile tear. No, not going to. I don't. I'm not swayed by your crocodile tear. Sorry, Democrats. When you guys ran the show, this is exactly how you did it. And look up in D.C., same sort of deal, right? They're not running regular order. They don't run this stuff through an, a process uh, that's uh, transparent, quote-unquote. We got a 620-something page budget dropped. You had like a day to read through all of it. And even the last, so what they do is on the uh, the day they're trying to get it approved, and, and last night it was the House, right? They started, you know, spending bills start in the House, and so the budget starts in the House. They got to approve it over there first. Then once they do uh, do their approval, then they send it over to the Senate. And then after that, it goes to the, uh, to the governor. And rather than work through, uh, like, uh, the committees and have, you know, people weighing in and all this stuff so everybody knows what the budget is going into the vote, you end up with the budget being negotiated basically in secret by the power brokers of the legislature. They then come forward with the budget proposal. They give you a couple hours, maybe a day to read through it all and then vote on it because they've already whipped all the votes. They've been talking behind the scenes about all this stuff. Oh, and by the way, part of the budget that they adopted last night also allows them to uh, determine on their own whether any of the communications that they were having about the budget behind the scenes is public record or not, and then they can destroy what they want to destroy and not be in violation of the law. What could go wrong? Um, Four Democrats in the House voted in favor of the almost $30 billion budget. Representatives Cecil Brockman, Carla Cunningham from Mecklenburg, Garland Pierce from Hoke, and Shelley Willingham from Bertie, and Michael Ray from Halifax. Um... Wait a minute. Cecil, Carla, Garland, Willingham, Michael Ray. That's five. That's 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 five. Anyway, the North Carolina Senate is scheduled for uh, they did. They actually did their third reading uh, and uh, they did their budget approval of this as well. Like I said, it was going over to Roy Cooper. He had 10 days to either sign it, veto it. uh, But after 10 days, 
um, then it becomes law without his signature, and that's what he's going to do. And so what they do is they hold these votes in the afternoon going into the evening, and they try to get that that reading, quote-unquote, the second reading, they try to get it done, that, that vote, done before midnight. And if they do it before midnight, then they just kind of go into an adjournment for a little while, and then they come back after midnight. And then they do, a, they, they do the third and final vote after midnight. Why do they do that? It's a new day. It counts as a new day. And so you get the budget rammed through, right, in just half a day, basically, in, you know, 12 hours or so. You're able to, to run it for the first vote. Midnight hits. Then you do the second vote immediately after. Think of it like how Jim Black did the lottery creation, for example. Right? That's how you do it. Cloak of night, dare I say it. Um, this is the um, this is the way that this has been done, as far as I can tell. Like that's always been the way. I don't like it, but ever since I've been covering state government in North Carolina, which goes back like twenty years, this is the way it's been done. I remember John Rhodes, who was primaried by Tom Tillis. Low those many years ago because he was a burr under the saddle for Democrat leadership. Tom Tillis primaried him. But John Rhodes would always talk about how he's given no time to read any of these bills, particularly the budget. So that's what we got uh, again from the Republicans. And there's a bunch of stuff in there. And by the way, yes, I'm seeing the, uh, uh, the folks in the burger camp over on the Senate side, Senate leader, uh, Phil Berger, like, this wouldn't have happened without Medicaid expansion. Prove it. It's easy to say that people wouldn't have approved particular items but for Medicaid expansion. But that, but we, but we'll, we're not going to know. We don't know that. See, I, I, I'm a believer in individual bills for individual issues. What the General Assembly is doing now with their budget process, they're they're dumping policy into the budget. I don't like that. And I know that they do it all the time. I still don't like it. If you're going to do something, like, for example, um, you want to create a um, exemption for lawmakers. This is one of the things in the budget. 625-page state budget, Republican state lawmakers... Uh, are uh, they are exempting themselves from public records law meant to safeguard transparency with a budget provision allowing them to keep any legislative document private even after they leave office this is from the associated press tucked into the budget lawmakers have begun voting uh, on fewer than less than 24 hours or fewer than 24 hours after it was released there's a section that first amendment experts say would enable the General Assembly to conduct more of the public's work in secret. Current and former state lawmakers would no longer be required to reveal any document, drafting request, or information request that they make or receive while in office. They would also have broad discretion to determine whether a record should be made public, archived, destroyed, or sold. Now, Tim Moore, Speaker of the House, he thinks it's fine. I know. Shocker. He says, I think the way it's written, I'm told, is structured in a way that's fair, that makes sense. Oh, okay. Well, I'm convinced. Um, Moore defended the policy to reporters, noting that lawmakers often field unreasonably broad or cumbersome records requests that bog down government offices and cost taxpayers money. 
The changes, he said, would eliminate confusion and allow lawmakers to filter out those requests. The nonpartisan North Carolina Open Government Coalition opposes this law, this provision in the budget. This is in the budget. Um, they say that it's uh, we're going to end up with a selected and curated narrative of the legislative process at the whims of legislative leadership. Mm-hmm. Yep. While North Carolina lawmakers are already considered the custodians of their own records, the current law only allows them to withhold those records if they claim a specific exemption. This, according to First Amendment lawyer Mike Tadich, 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 Tadich. Anyway, Mike says uh, certain caucus meetings and affiliated records are not open to the public. A lawmaker's communications with staff during a bill drafting process, that can stay private. The new policy would eliminate the need for lawmakers to claim one of these exemptions, though, when declining a records request. So from now on, they're just going to say no. And when you ask why, they're just going to ignore you. They're not even going to give you a reason why. Journalists and the public rely on North Carolina public records law, which Tadich says is one of the strongest in the country in practice. And journalists and the public use those public records to learn how the behind-the-scene details unfold in the legislative process. And what I think lawmakers don't like is that some of them get used against them in court when they get sued over things. Journalists and civic groups could be stonewalled. (gasps) No, do you think so? Absolutely. The North Carolina Press Association opposes it. The North Carolina Association of Broadcasters opposes it. I oppose it. It's in the budget. Would love to be able to take that out and vote against that one bill. But no, I can't unless I want to expand Medicaid. Oh, wait, I don't want to do that either. Yeah, so you, yeah. I'm, so I'm against the budget. <laughs> See how that works? I'm against the budget. I'm against the budget, and now I'm against everybody who voted for the budget. Right? This is the, this is the stupidity of the play, and they're going to try to tell me that the only reason they got all these conservative wins, all the other stuff that's in the budget that I might like, I have to swallow the crap sandwich in order to get universal school choice because we couldn't possibly do school choice with our super majority that we won based on Trisha Cotham's support of school choice. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, So the uh, state legislature approved the $30 billion budget. I'm not going to go into all the details on it. We'll do that next week. Uh, Cooper, the governor, is just going to ride this thing for 10 days. He's not going to sign it, but it'll become law. Um, But I got to tell you this other story that was kind of in the background. Uh, Let me start with uh, the headline out of the Charlotte Observer. North Carolina Speaker Tim Moore sends Democrat who crossed him to a basement office. So it started with Alex Boltzigar, a Carolina Journal reporter. I I talked about this the other day. He posted it with a video uh, about an incident between State Senator Paul Lowe, a Democrat from Forsyth County, and State Representative Terrence Everett, a Democrat from Wake County. Okay, so one House Democrat, one House Senator, or sorry, one one House Democrat, one Senate Democrat. Now, Paul Lowe has a reputation 
for crossing over and voting with Republicans on things. He's an older black Democrat, more of a conservative guy, and uh, he he raises the ire. He gets opposition and gets uh, anger directed at him from the progressive white leftist wing of his party. And so Terrence Everett sent out a tweet attacking Senator Lowe because Lowe wasn't quick enough to sign on to a letter opposing the casinos that the Republicans tried to attach to the Medicaid expansion in order to try to force people to vote for the casinos. They tried to use the casino or the the Medicaid expansion as this uber sweetener to get everybody to go along with all these ideas and Democrats and Republicans, uh, uh, the House Freedom Caucus Republicans were like, no, we're not going along with this. They then didn't have a veto-proof majority. That would have allowed Cooper to veto the budget, and so it died. Right? But Paul Lowe did eventually sign on to the letter, which prompted Terrence Everett to delete his tweet. But Lowe was not happy about it. Um, and so Lowe went and confronted Everett. But Everett, as I went over the other day, didn't want to didn't want a, a confrontation, so he hid hid in the bathroom, and then he hid in his legislative aide's office. But Paul Lowe found him. And this is where the Carolina Journal reporter, Alex Baltzigar, could see Lowe yelling at Everett. Okay, so that's the backdrop. And against this backdrop, Speaker Tim Moore says, uh, hey, you know what? I don't want you to feel unsafe. It's come to my attention that you were involved in an altercation with fellow Democratic colleague this week. I'm informed and was provided information posted to social media that a member of the Senate took issue with one of your social media missives and sought to confront you directly. I'm also informed that you were somewhat concerned for your physical safety and were looking for various points of refuge in which to hide from that member during your retreat from that confrontation. Please know that I believe all members should be able to express themselves without the need to hide in a staffer's office, regardless of how timid they are to avoid direct confrontation. I want you to know that I take the safety and security of you and every member of the legislature very seriously, and I have determined it's appropriate to elevate your security. Accordingly, you're being assigned a new member office that will provide greater security. It is somewhat removed. But it has multiple points of ingress and egress and is close to the General Assembly Police Office. It is an office that we have held in reserve for quite some time for special circumstances and those members especially deserving or in need of such accommodations. In some ways, this office assignment is historic, mind you, in a very insignificant way. In the 50 plus <laughs> in the 50 plus years that the General Assembly has met in this legislative building, this office has not been utilized as a member office. So you will get the honor of adding a chapter in the rich history of these hallowed halls. For some members, they are often recognized for their legislative accomplishments, constituent service, or shaping the passage of laws. For others, it is where their office was. Each member may determine their priorities for their legacy. Your legislative assistant will continue to occupy the office, which was assigned for her use, but we will monitor to see if any further moves are needed in order to facilitate efficiency and security. I hope you find your new office, LB24, to be a good fit and provide for greater security and meet your needs during the remainder of your service this session in the House of Representatives. Please let me know any way I can be a further assistance. Well, room LB24 is a janitor's closet. 
They literally moved Everett to a janitor's closet. And Everett went onto social media and complained about it, saying, this is only because I tried to get the district attorney to prosecute Tim Moore over his affair. (laughs) Well, you know what? Maybe so. Maybe so, moron. Maybe so. Well, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. Hey, so real quick, hurricane season is here, and this is your reminder to check your emergency supplies. You should have a three-day supply of food, water, and medicines, minimum. And Carolina Readiness Supply can help you get started or expand your supply. Food, water purifiers, lighting, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies too, because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you can use for any kind of emergency. Whether you're an experienced prepper or you have no clue what you're doing, or maybe you're somewhere in between, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you. In Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply, will you be ready when the lights go out? Uh, direct message on the Twitter machine. Hey, Pete, remember that Senator Paul Lowe uh, was the one that had the confrontation with Joe Killian's cell phone. That's <laughs> right, Joe Killian, the reporter, who's now, uh, he was a lefty, he's now writing for like one of the lefty uh, nonprofits. Uh, there was some screaming match among Democrats behind closed doors, and then they open the doors, and Paul Lowe comes storming out, and Killian starts asking him some questions. Remember, and he swats the phone away from him, and then he had to apologize over it. That was, yeah, Paul Lowe. I don't know. Um, all right, let me uh, let me get Jesse on real quick. Uh, hey, Jesse, welcome to the program. What's going on? Hey, Pete, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, yeah. Uh, help me understand. You know, the North Carolina education. I mean, they passed it in North Carolina, um, but it says North Carolina education law. That's what it's for. Please explain to me why they keep asking for bonds and taxes to you know to build schools and pay teachers more money. I would imagine the lottery takes in more than enough money to cover all these costs that us taxpayers wouldn't have to be on the burden for. It does not. We understand that. Thank you. No, it does not. So the lottery does not take in $17 billion a year. That's what the state budget is for education. Okay. That's crazy. Yeah, $17 billion a year. Now, that's K through university. That's all of it. I haven't okay. seen the exact breakdown, but I've seen the number, and it's about $17 billion out of a $30 billion budget. Wow. So it is wow. literally, so when you hear people say, uh, you know, That's education needs to be a priority, they need to make it the number one priority, like, it literally is the number one funding priority in the state of North Carolina. So, well, uh, yeah, so it just doesn't generate that kind of revenue, uh, but also, it, it, you know, the money that it does uh, spin off, you know, it gets supplanted, which everybody said it would. Right. Because there's no way to know, especially a decade, two decades later, what it should have been, what it would have been. And then to make sure that the lottery is sort of this separate funding stream that we're not supposed to know exists while we make the budgets on the education side. What, you know, keeping track to what some, uh, I don't know, idea of what the optimal spending per pupil would have been without a lottery, too. Uh, There's no way to know that. Right. Yeah. So, and this is going to, yeah, I mean, and this is the problem with all of those types of revenue streams. Jesse, I appreciate the call, man. Have a great weekend. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was, and it was sold as a panacea, right? I mean, that's the problem. It was sold as this way to fund education, and then we wouldn't have to worry about all of the education um, funding levels falling short. And lo and behold, we always get, you know, accusations and arguments that funding levels are falling short because the optimal funding level is more.
Right, exactly. That's the that's the optimal number. More. All right, let me give you a, a real quick audio clip. Two of them, actually. And I lied. It's not real quick. It's about three and a half minutes. Do you know who Dave Portnoy is? He's the founder of Barstool Sports. Okay? If you haven't heard this yet, you're going to love it. Dave Portnoy is getting ready to do some, because he also does this thing where he goes around and he eats pizza, uh, and he does like a rating system, the one-bite pizza test or something. Uh, he does like a rating system. Well, he goes around and he does this, and um, so they've made a whole thing out of it, and they got this pizza festival going on this weekend up in New York or Boston or wherever it is. So the Washington Post is reaching out to advertisers of Barstool Sports, and he hears about it from his advertisers, and so he calls the Washington Post reporter. This is Emily. Hey, Emily, this is Dave Portnoy calling. Uh, I'm recording you right now, but I've noticed a bunch of people. It seems like you're sending, we have this pizza fest happening on Saturday, and you're reaching out to our advertisers, and you're basically sending an email that says, to the effect, Dave's a misogenic racist. Do you want to defend yourselves by the way, it's a misogynist. He, I, for some reason, does not know how to pronounce the word misogynist. He's calling it misogenic. So, all right, there you go. Advertising at this event, right? I'm sorry, what's your name, Dave? I'm sorry, who are you? I'm the guy you're writing the article about, Dave Portnoy. <laughs> oh, you're Dave Portnoy. Oh, hey, how are you? Good. Good. No, I'm, I'm not. I haven't said anything like that. I'm well, I- wait. Remember those words. I haven't said anything like that. She says that. I haven't said anything like that. I, I can I can read if you want. If you want, I can read what you actually sent. I have it. Yeah, yeah, read because I, I sent a bunch of notes, so I want to make sure I know which one. Okay, uh, we are planning to write about the festival and how and how some of the sponsors and participants have drawn criticism by seemingly to associate themselves with Dave Portnoy, who has a history of misogynic comments and other problematic behavior. I want to make sure that Blank had a chance to respond to this since the company is the most prominent and they're partners of his festival. Oh, that's the one I sent to which was definitely the most pointed of them because I really did want them to respond and I was hoping to get something from them. Do you think that's fair? Like, I, I totally disagree with the assertions of what you said, that misogynic and all that stuff. So, like, it kind of backs people into a corner. So I'm happy to go over anything. I mean, you have... That is pretty pointed. You said you didn't do it. Then I have the exact evidence of you doing it. So I didn't say I didn't do that. I said she said, I haven't said anything like that. That's what she said. That I did. That was the one that was the most. Well, no, you you, before I before I provided proof, you said you didn't really remember doing that. And then I read it to you and you're like, oh, yeah, I did it that one time. So you did do it. Um, (laughs) I'm happy to talk about the comments because to me, it's kind of like torturous interference. Like we're doing an event. Everyone's happy about the event. Uh, You know, I've raised 50 million for small business. I've helped pizza. None of that. It's Dave's misogenic and problematic. And I'm happy to talk about it because to me, nobody would like if someone's going around sending that email to their sponsors. And again, you're not like questioning you. You're, it's almost like a statement of fact. This mm-hmm. is what I am. Yeah. So, um, I do want to talk to you about this. Oh. Um, and I just want you to know that <laughs> the story I'm working on, I'm working on with a colleague. Um, and I want to kind of loop him on this cause we did want to talk to you. And we were when were you, when were you going to reach out? 
We were planning on doing it tomorrow morning, hmm. but... Um, so you're going to write the article and then give me... Like, I've had that a bunch. People write no, a full no, article and then give me the points no, no, after. We're doing a bunch of, no, we're doing a bunch of reporting, and we wanted to make sure that when we finally did talk to you, we could really kind of present what, you know, or talk about things more fully based on... Like what? what like, it sounds like you have your opinion made of me based on no, that email. No, no. Uh-oh. So then how, if you don't have your opinion made of me, how do you say in an intro email, Dave Portnoy has a history of misogenic comments and other problematic behavior? That's how you introduce the email. Yeah. So, look, I just want you to know that this is, not, I, I want to talk to you about this, but. Um, I don't you think you should talk to me before sending that email? What I wanted to do is I wanted to talk to you when we had we had some specific questions for you. And so I wanted to kind of have the full idea of what we that's were not a full idea. Like you, the, anybody who's rationally reading that email being sent to an advertiser would have to be like, this is a hit piece and you have your mind made up. Absolutely. I can tell you that's exactly what happened. That is exactly what she did. You don't write. She's doing a story about the festival and Dave Portnoy's association with it and then going after the advertisers. Why do the advertisers have to get an email from you saying, oh, well, you're associated with Dave Portnoy. Are you worried about it because of his misogynistic comments and his problematic behavior? They've already defined the terms. They've already defined Dave Portnoy, right? That's the premise upon which they're operating. And any advertiser is going to hear that and see that for what it is, which is a threat. You don't want to be associated with him. I got one more clip. All right. You may have noticed that I've been helping the Alzheimer's Association of Western North Carolina for a while. And it's a great organization. They got awesome people with huge hearts. My grandfather died of Alzheimer's when I was a kid. And back then, there wasn't a lot of support for caregivers and family. Now, things are different today thanks to the work of the Alzheimer's Association. It's why I support them. Every year we do a series of walks all over the country. There are a bunch in the Carolinas. You can go to alz.org slash walk for a walk to end Alzheimer's near you. This month there are walks in Hendersonville, Rock Hill, Mooresville, Greenville, and in October we got Charlotte, Gastonia, Asheville, Kannapolis, Hickory, and Spartanburg. Go to alz.org for all of the dates and locations. We're closer than ever to stopping Alzheimer's, and we're asking if you can help us get there. Will you walk with me for a different future for families? For more time, for treatments, this is why we walk. Uh, all right, so Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports. This is, as um, uh, Evita Duffy Alfonso with The Federalist calls it, this is a master class on how to handle the corrupt corporate media. You go on offense. He calls the Washington Post reporter. Her name is uh, Emily eh, something or other. It doesn't matter. Um, he calls, by the way, she and her colleague that were working on the story, about this pizza fest, this one-bite pizza festival in Brooklyn. Emily Heil is her name. Really? Heil? Okay, whatever. Um, she, uh, they, so they both locked their Twitter accounts. They locked them down so because obviously they were getting a whole bunch of grief for the way they handled this. The first thing you would do, if you're going to do a story on the one-bite pizza festival, the first thing you would do, I would think, is you would contact the organizers of the festival, right? You contact the organizers. And I'm pretty sure that Dave Portnoy would have been very interested to talk with you about the festival. And by the way, Dave Portnoy, 
This is one of the things he always says, like, I'm an open book. You ask me whatever you want. Nothing's ever off the record. He told her this, too. It was like an 11-minute phone call. And you can hear her stumbling and fumbling around. Let me get to this last clip here. Um, This one's a short one. You said it in a way that is putting sponsors on the defensive. So what I worried about when we contact you, I was worried that we would have sort of one shot to talk to you, right? And so what I wanted to do is make everything we were going to, that we wanted to talk to you about before I reached out to you. That's why. That's why I was waiting to call you. Because you wanted to have everything together before you talked to me. I got to be honest, this sounds like something who's going to hit me last second, be like comments and all this negative stuff. No, this is like, uh, this is kind of standard journalistic stuff. Like, we Unfortunately, yes. Right. So why would, why would you think you would only have one shot to talk with him? If you're doing a story about the festival and it's just about the festival, then, um, why do you think you would only get one shot to talk with him? You're, for, you're the Washington Post, right? You would ask him some questions. Hey, can I follow up with you via email, whatever, whatever, about some other stuff, if it comes up, whatever. But they already knew about this other stuff that they wanted to ask him about, which he says comes from a hit piece that was uh, created by uh, a guy that's been, like, uh, trolling him for, like, 13 years. That's where all of that came from. That's what he says. I don't know the ins and outs of it. All I know is this, is that... That reporter called uh, only she didn't call that reporter didn't call because she was getting her ducks in a row. She essentially admits as such she's getting her ducks in a row. And those ducks include the misogynistic and problematic behavior. And she went after the advertisers. Why would you do that? There's a there's an intimidation factor at play. That's what that's what she did. And, and she acknowledged This at the very end of the call when she says, well, you know, uh, we try to get them to basically be afraid so they will talk with us. They will give a response. Otherwise, they're not going to respond. So they are interested in this aspect of the story about you being associated with this guy. And this guy is bad. People say bad things about him. And you're associated with him. So tell us about why you want to be associated with him. Defend yourself. Right? Defend or disavow. That's the game she was playing. She didn't need to talk to Portnoy until she got a bunch of advertisers on the record saying whether they defend or disavow him. Then she hits him with that, and then she expects that he's going to be like, I'm done talking to you. I'm not going to participate in this anymore. Lose my number. That's what the way she thought it was going to go down because that's the structure that she built. That was her approach. Portnoy said it's sad state of journalism pointing out that her tactic is to lie and her motive is probably to destroy his festival because she created a false characterization of him in order to scare off his sponsors. Right. Why there's a, there's a festival being done for a small business, a pizza festival, because this guy has made this viral sensation thing about going around, taking one bite out of pizza, giving a review and everybody loves his reviews. Well, not everybody. Some people don't. I saw some guy got very upset about it a couple of weeks ago just because his wife read a piece, a hit that read a hit piece about him in like the New York Times. And so the pizza guy is like, get out of here, you're terrible. And then Portnoy's like, yeah, your shirt's six sizes too small. Yeah, so. Yeah, they're Yankees. Come on. Two six packs of shiner, 99 cent butane lighter. 
Lucky strikes in a fifth of Patron Ice down that igloo cooler Take a guess at all to do her I can feel a good one coming on Throw in Ray Wiley Hubbard Sing along to Redneck Mother Any blues I had before are gone Another working week is over No chance of staying sober So that reporter tries to end the conversation repeatedly by saying, oh, I want to talk to you. We want to interview you. When can we do it? When can you do it? Guess what didn't happen? Three blondes in a ragtop Mustang Followed us down to the lake And didn't have to think about that too long Skinny dipping in the bright moonlight Situation couldn't be more right All right, so she says, we want to interview you, but Portnoy's like, if you really wanted to get my perspective, I wouldn't be calling you, right? So they set up a time. He reluctantly agrees, 10 a.m. yesterday. They never called him. (laughs) They never got the interview with him. Shocking, right? That's the way you do it, though. All right, I'll see you on Monday. Y'all don't break anything while I'm gone. Yeah.